Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage this morning comes from Luke 6, uh, 1 through 11. Listen for what God is saying to you. One Sabbath, as Jesus was going through the wheat fields, his disciples were picking the heads of wheat, rubbing them in their hands, and eating them. Some Pharisees said, Why are you breaking the Sabbath law? Jesus replied, Haven't you read what David and his companions did when they were hungry? He broke the law by going into God's house and eating the bread of the presence, which only the priests can eat. He also gave some of the bread to his companions. Then he said to them, The human one is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, Jesus entered a synagogue to teach, a man there whose right hand was withered. The legal experts and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. They were looking for a reason to bring charges against him. Jesus knew their thoughts, so he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. He got up and stood there. Jesus said to the legal experts and Pharisees, Here's a question for you. Is it legal on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Looking around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he did, and his hand was made healthy. They were furious and began talking with each other about what to do to Jesus. May God add a blessing to the, le- to the hearing and understanding of the scripture. So this morning we have um, a little bit of a, a different setup. Uh, some of you may have seen my Facebook post last night that um, I won't be the only one preaching today, but uh, we have the, the joy of um, Anna Peterson, uh, one of our UVCers, um, joining me as well. Because some sermons need more than one person to preach. Thank you. Okay. Um, some sermons need more than one person to preach. So while, uh, while Drew is grabbing that and setting that up, let's come together in a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for gathering us this morning to do the work of um, faith building and worship, worshiping together. We invite your spirit into the space, um, not only of this sanctuary, but the space of our hearts and minds to move freely, to change us, to transform us, to startle us with what your word has to say to us today. We pray all of this with hope and openness and a vision for something greater. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So when I was growing up, um, there was a family member that all of us dreaded encountering, and he was unavoidable. When he would show up, he would invade your space, and you would often feel very, very cornered, actually. No matter which way you squirmed, you couldn't escape, and no matter which way you answered, you were always wrong. His name was Mr. Ticklefinger. (laughs) Mr. Ticklefinger partnered with my dad to pin us down and present us with the same terror-infused question every time. He would say, hi, I'm Mr. Ticklefinger. Do you like me? And it was in this small question that we knew 
we were only seconds away from our demise. Because uh, you see, if you said no, Mr. Ticklefinger would become very upset and tickle you out of anger. But if you said yes, Mr. Ticklefinger would become really happy and tickle you out of joy. It was one of my earliest experiences of a no-win situation. I tried the, like, don't answer, and that also did not go over well. So um, there was no way of getting out of being attacked by Mr. Ticklefinger. And so I felt from a very young age when I would encounter him uh, very defenseless, very powerless, and completely trapped by his logic. It's a game you just couldn't win if you were on the wrong end of the finger. And of course, I look forward to introducing Sela to Ms. Ticklefinger when she is old enough to feel that kind of hopelessness. Um, so, but this sense, right, this sense of not being able to win no matter what, that, um, that's the kind of situation that Jesus found himself when he, um, in both of these scenarios that Benia read um, in our passage this morning. Throughout his ministry, Jesus was trying to bring people back to the heart of what um, God's core purposes were, that all of creation might have wholeness of life, that all of creation might flourish. And so in our passage today, the focus of this um, in particular is around the Sabbath. And in some ways it sort of feels like, dang, y'all messed things up so bad that you couldn't even like get a day off right, you know? <laughs> but well, there you go. So we're first made aware of the Sabbath um, actually a couple of weeks ago um, when in the first sermon of this series uh, in the creation story, when God rests after six days of creative work. And so quite a, but quite a bit later, um, in Exodus, God speaks to the people about the Sabbath again um, in the Ten Commandments. So um, what it says is, uh, remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all of your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it, not you, your sons, or your daughters, your male or female servants, your animals, or the immigrant who is living with you. Because the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them in six days but rested on the seventh day. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So the Sabbath is a day that's set aside um, for your work, where you, a day when you set aside your work, a day when everyone, even your animal and the immigrant who is living with you, is given leave as God did. Rest and be blessed. Over time, what that rest looked like and how that blessing kind of took shape became more and more regulated to the point where in our first story, the first story that Vania read, um, the controversy isn't that the disciples took food in someone's land, in someone else's land. Um, that was allowed even if, as long as it wasn't done for like mass production, right? So it was okay to like take some, even if it was someone else's land, um, for you to eat. Um, it wasn't even that they had like picked the food. The issue was that they were rubbing it in their hands to make it so that they could eat the wheat, separating the wheat from the trash. This con or tra wheat from the chaff. Tra thank you. Uh, that's an old school term. Um, so this constituted threshing, um, which is what you do when you separate wheat from chaff. And no matter that they were exhausted from traveling, no matter that they actually hadn't eaten for a long time and were deeply hungry, um, probably weren't even sure where they were going to sleep the next day, a rule's a rule, right? And so the rule keepers, the law interpreters, the Pharisees, they were there to make sure that those rules were honored. Too bad, so sad for you. And now, 
the Pharisees throughout the Gospels kind of get portrayed as bad guys. But ultimately, I think that they're just trying to make sure everyone is really clear about what's okay and what's not, right? It's not necessarily because they're like a bunch of uptight, you know, thin-lipped haters. It's more because they're trying to make sure that folks are being responsible and faithful followers to the tradition, right? They're trying to make sure that like there aren't people who kind of try to like wiggle around and <coughs> abuse the system. So the purpose of the Sabbath, which is to honor God by living lives that are reflective of God's vision of work and rest, health and wholeness. He's trying to, they're, that's what they're trying to do is like help people live into that. And so Jesus is kind of pointing out to them though that um, you know, their rule keeping kind of like they're getting so fixated on the details that they kind of lost track of the big picture. Um, so he's trying to point this out to them. And when an organization or a person even loses their sense of purpose, right, they can get caught up in, um, in the details and forget about what the point of it, what they're trying to do. And so things can go down pretty, downhill pretty quickly. Jesus loved his people. He loved the tradition that he had grown up in had been formed by and, nur and nurtured by. So he's not like trying to like just kind of upend everything just for the sake of it. He's really actually trying to make it better. It broke his heart to see it get so tangled up with itself that it was not just dysfunctional, but actually did violence to its own people, right? He loved what God's vision for the world was and wanted to call his people to do better and to be better. And so about a month ago, actually, I received, I was actually kind of preparing mentally for this sermon series and I got this email from Anna, uh, Anna Peterson, um, who is a teacher in Chicago Public Schools, second, second year teacher now, right? And in her email, she was sharing about why she was voting, um, it was an email that she had sent out to friends and family um, about why she was voting to authorize a strike, as well as her um, complex feelings about, about striking. So I'm gonna let her share a little bit about her story right now. Um, so I'm just gonna read you the email first. If you're receiving this email, it's because I know you care about education, students and their families, and our social justice issues more broadly. All of you live in Chicago, have lived in Chicago, or know someone who lives in Chicago. Chicago is in turmoil and has been for some time. The violence and corruption in our city has a direct impact on my students and their families every single day. This is why I want to share with you this most recent communication from the Chicago Teachers Union it has updated details and timelines related to the possible teacher strike and also the CTU resolution passed at the December House of Delegates meeting endorsing a civilian police accountability council. We're fighting for a fair contract that protects the rights of every student in our schools and gives them access to a full and vibrant education and childhood. We need the support of folks near and far. I would rather not strike. It's a huge disruption for our students. It's a huge inconvenience for their families. It is a last resort after all other forms of negotiation have been exhausted. So I'm more than willing to share more of my personal experiences with you and why I will be voting yes to authorize a strike. Let me know if you have any questions. Thanks for reading, um, signed by me. So Emily took me up on my offer <laughs> to share more of my personal experiences and here I am. Um, there are many, many issues in education that I could elaborate on, but I'm, I wanna focus on four today. Um, class size, understaffing, competition, and over-testing. So I'm a seventh grade math teacher at Shields Middle School in Brighton Park. It's a neighborhood school just a few miles to our west. Our building is brand new. It's less than four years old. We have a beautiful, beautiful full library, no librarian. Um, Shields is not considered by the district to be overcrowded. 
Yeah, in my classroom I have 17 tables and 36 chairs, and every single one of them is filled. Of those 35 students in my first period class, 15 of them have IEPs, which is to say that they have specific learning or health needs that require accommodations or modifications to support their success at school. I simply cannot provide the individualized attention that they need and deserve, that each of my students need and deserve in a classroom of that size, even with my co-teacher and the, the aides that I have. Um, and I have friends in other schools who actually have class sizes that are larger than that. Furthermore, my students come to school every day carrying significant weights on their shoulders. First of all, they're adolescents. <laughs> their bodies and their friendships and their identities are changing very rapidly. But on top of what would be considered typical teenage stressors, many of my students live in perpetual fear for their safety and security. Whether it's where their next meal is coming from, if immigration officers will be finding out that their parents are undocumented, if somebody in their family will be the next victim of community violence or police brutality. These are heavy weights that my students carry. And we're trying our best as a school to give students space to process those feelings and emotions, but we share our nurse and our psychologist and our social worker with two other schools. Hmm. Fortunately, we have a community partner at our school, the Brighton Park Neighborhood Council, who has fundraised specifically to provide another full-time social worker dedicated just to our students. So that's sort of class size and understaffing. Um, where I grew up, which is in a very small community in rural Ohio, there was only one high school. Everybody knew exactly where they were going to high school when they got done with eighth grade. In Chicago, there are dozens of options. Neighborhood, charter, selective enrollment, magnet, private, military, and we have almost all of those represented just in the teachings and student staff of this congregation. <laughs> um, it's, it's completely dizzying. After returning back to class from a high school fair last spring, a student asked me, Mrs. Peterson, how do I know what school is the right school to choose. The whole process is completely overwhelming and stressful for students and families. And the competition is super fierce. Um, I have friends who have hired consultants to help them make decisions about where to send their kids to pre-K. Because preschool is important for getting your kid ready for the right kindergarten, which prepares them for their getting into the right elementary school so that they can get into the best high school so they can get into the best college. And this starts when their kids are two going on three. Um, this kind of competition works absolutely and directly against the kind of collaborative and community-focused mindset that we're trying to teach in our classrooms. Lastly, for math class, and I'm just going to speak to my own like personal narrow um, sphere, so just in math alone, my students take a district-mandated assessment at the beginning of the year, which takes a full day away from instruction. In the winter, they take a benchmark test that takes most students two days to complete. There are two different state-mandated standardized tests each spring, each one taking up to two full days, again, out of regular instruction. Um, my students, their parents, teachers, the principals are all very intimately aware of the targets, the specific targets that each student needs to reach because so much is tied to those numbers. I receive a, a value added score as a teacher based on these numbers, which determines the likelihood that I'll be retained in my position. A student's ability to be promoted to the next grade level or their ability to apply to the high schools, because 
seventh grade is the year of the scores and the grades that the high schools look at. So my seventh graders are very, very focused on these scores. Um, and our school's report card is formulated by those numbers, which then determines my principal's ability to have choice and autonomy in running his own school. Because if you don't have the scores, then the district takes things over. So five years ago when I decided to go back to school to become a classroom teacher is because I love to learn. I love being involved with a child's process of discovery. Um, that's really exciting to me. I care about our young people. I care about our collective future. And it infuriates me that the, these things that I see in my school every day. Because it sends the message to me, to the students and their families, that our needs don't matter. It says to me that we don't want students to be critical consumers of information. We just want them to be able to test well. It, when special education and library positions and other wraparound services are eliminated, it sends the message that our students are not whole beings with individual needs and interests. And when resources and funding are not distributed equi equitably throughout the state or within our district, it sends the message that some communities matter more than others. So um, Jesus is in the middle of these kinds of like what the system uh, was created to do versus what it's actually doing. Um, he knew what the Sabbath was for, and he wanted folks to go back to that place, right? To remember that God is about the business of wholeness, of flourishing life. That's what the Sabbath was about, flourishing of life, time out and time away. And, but that purpose, uh, and that purpose, that flourishing of life, was the central commitment that drove Jesus' ministry and decision-making. And there are so many areas in the gospel where we see this kind of play out, not just in the Sabbath. But for the Pharisees, they couldn't see past their love for the structure. They couldn't see past their love for the process to appreciate, to remember the purpose. They'd lost sight of why they existed. And so when Jesus doesn't argue, doesn't convince them through arguing um, about the technicality of the law in the, in the first story, that's when he kind of gets into talking about the priest, well, well David, you know, had this bread during the, um, that was reserved for the priest because he and his people were hungry. He then tries to kind of, in a different scenario, reawaken them through essentially the law of common sense. And um, so here's this man, his right hand is withered, and let me just break it, break it down for you a minute so that way you can kind of fully appreciate what's going on, kind of similarly the way that um, Anna just did um, about CPS. In, in this time, and in, even in some cultures today, some of you might know, um, your right hand is your respectable hand. Um, you use your left, things for ha your left hand for things like bathroom business, and I'll leave it like that. Um, and it's dirty and it's rude to use your left hand in public or in relationship with other people. So your right hand is your respectable hand, your public hand. But if your public hand is withered, it's useless. And not only is it useless, it's grotesque, right? People look at it and they don't want to get close. It looks wrong and it's maybe even offensive to people. So if your options are your dirty hand that offends people or your withered hand that scares people off, and here is Jesus able to restore you, not only to a productive life, but to the community that you couldn't interact with, even though it's a technicality it's a law, um, to, it's a technical law to heal on the Sabbath that, again, that you can't heal on the Sabbath. Um, and Jesus knows what the Pharisees are thinking, that they're watching him very carefully. Jesus decides to let the people decide. What does the law of common sense to you? Should I heal this man or not? And it's very clear to everyone, 
yeah, it's the Sabbath, but you've got to heal this guy, right? So maybe you've been one of these people, right? Maybe you've been the man with the withered hand or the disciples who have gone hungry, the ones who were depending on the mercy of a system to bend just a little so that you could grab onto a thread of human dignity, that you were the student needing the wraparound services to help bridge the gap between what you were studying and who you were as a person. Maybe you've been, uh, like, been like Jesus, right, in a position to do something, kind of like Anna, um, but straddling the expectation of the people who are looking at you with the restrictive gaze, um, or the people who you are trying to, to serve, right? Or maybe, maybe even you've been a Pharisee. Maybe you've been, at some time in your life, so caught up in the details, in the process, that you've lost sight of the purpose. Many of us have been in one or more of these roles at different times in our lives. But most of us, um, most all of us are often in the position of the crowd, right? Watching, standing, waiting for the structure to work itself out and wondering who's going to step up? How will the violence of the system get disrupted? So what if you're the one? What if you're the one who's supposed to step in and step up? So I asked Anna, <laughs> If you're the one who's supposed to step in and step up in some way, how do you not become overwhelmed with the system, right? How do you keep going? How do you continue to remind yourself of your purpose when it seems like everything around you, the structure, the container that you're operating in, um, is working against that purpose? Um, so firstly, my family keeps me going. Um, my husband, who couldn't be here today because he has other school-related commitments. He has an internship site, a separate church has an internship site. Um, but he does my laundry, and he cooks my dinner when I work long hours, which is on the regular. Um, he motivates me to try to stick to my health and wellness goals, like regular exercise and counseling. Uh, he draws me a bubble bath and brews me hot tea when I need to distress. Um, my mom has my class rosters, and she prays for my kids by name. Um, my brother Lucas, who's here with me today, is in this fight with me. He's a high school chemistry teacher. We call each other on our early morning commutes to work just to say, I hope you have a great day. My cohort mates and mentors from my graduate school are my like, teaching rocks. We spent two very emotional years together thinking, discussing, and practicing what it means to be a critical educator who's trying um, to cultivate humanizing and empowering classrooms. They keep it real with me when I need a kick in the pants, and they encourage me when I've had a rough day and just need a friendly voice on the other end of the line. And some of them are here today. I just want to say thank you. Um, I go to rallies and marches that help bring visibility to the issues I care about. I wear my red on Fridays to show solidarity with other teachers across the district. I'm really grateful for the connections I've made through teacher activist groups, like Teachers for Social Justice here in Chicago. Um, there's one in New York called NICOR. These are grassroots organizations that keep me connected to the larger education movement, um, and they remind me that there are other people out there with a shared vision for our schools. Each fall, the Teachers for Social Justice group here in Chicago puts on a curriculum fair where teachers, students, community activists all come together um, to share justice-centered curriculum and resources and ideas with each other, and this is all for free um, to anybody who can come, who wants to come. This fair is particularly well-timed in early November, which is when myself and a lot of other teachers I know are feeling really low. Um, I am 
completely re-energized and inspired every year when I walk out the doors of that fair to bring new ideas into my classroom. When we're caught in the fragments of a broken system, we have to find ways. We have to find ways to be reminded not only of our own humanity, but of that original vision of like why we got into this in the first place, right? And we do that best when we're in community. Um, Jesus, Anna spoke to some, some different communities that she stays, um, that help her kind of be reminded of that vision, but also pour into her to help her keep going. Well, Jesus remembered this, not only because it was at the heart of his ministry, just a couple of chapters earlier from our passage this morning, um, Jesus states his mission goal, which is, um, should be projected on here, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed. But he needed community to remind him of that when things got really thick, when he was having a hard time moving. He needed community to remind him of that vision, to pour into him. And that's partly why we gather here every Sunday, right? Regardless of what um, industry or uh, life stage we're at, we are still engaged in work, right? And so we gather every Sunday to be reminded of, um, of our purpose as vision uh, and, and our vision as agents um, for the flourishing of life, as partners with God um, in creation and wholeness of life for all. The community not only reminds us of our purpose and pours into us and gives us the energy we need, it also gives us courage, right? Courage to press on and keep pushing. Courage that is born from community reminds us that we're not alone in the fight. Courage born from community reminds us that we're not the only ones who think that the way things are have to be the way that they will always be, right? Courage born from community gives us what we need to come together to imagine again, to hope again, to envision again what could be. And when we claim that courage, when we step out in courage, we find confirmation that we're not crazy for imagining what we're imagining. We're not crazy for hoping or for envisioning what we do. When we step out and step up in courage, we are given evidence that our efforts actually mean something. We begin to see how what we're doing is making a difference. In other words, we gain conviction, not just to hope and imagine, but to see that the fight is truly worth it. I asked Anna again, how do you see that what you're doing is making a difference? Where do you see flourishing in the midst of a system that's not set up for everyone to flourish? Where do you see, the, where do you gain the conviction that what you're doing is worth it? Uh, so I have to remember to look for it, first of all, because when I do, when I look for it, I see signs of hope and life every single day. Um, but it's really, really easy to stay focused on the parts of my work that are the most challenging. So I, I was actually really grateful for this question because it's, it's really important to con constantly ask myself that question. Um, so I see it in individual interactions with students when the light bulb goes on for a student who doesn't usually see the relevance of the math content that we're studying. I teach a subject that people like to hate and it gets abused and like even just common conversation, it's totally appropriate for people to say like, oh, I'm bad at math, I don't like math. I'm not okay with that. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, there's, a, there's a story I like to tell about a lesson I was teaching on sales tax and to bring it to the student's level, I was asking if anybody had ever purchased anything from the corner store. And everybody, you know, of course, their hands shot up. And so when I told them that a part of each of their 
purchases goes towards you know all the things that are funded by our sales tax, like streets and sanitation and schools and et cetera. Um, I look over and I observe this one student just kind of get this far off look in his eyes. And he says quietly to no one in particular, I never knew that just by shopping, I could make the world a better place. <laughs> so I kind of giggled to myself and made a mental note to make sure we discussed consumerism and capitalism in the future. <laughs> but it, it was just, I loved that moment. Um, I also see it when parents, teachers, and other staff are able to come together to provide like a wraparound support that helps a student to be more successful. Um, I asked one of my current students, his name is Miguel, if he would be comfortable with me sharing his story with you today. And he said, he said yeah, Ms. Peterson, I think they'll be okay with me. Um, Miguel is a completely hilarious student with a really big smile. He learns math concepts really quickly, but he was diagnosed at a very young age with ADHD and he receives counseling services for anger management. His behavior is very unpredictable from day to day, um, even from minute to minute sometimes within the same class period. So ever since coming back from winter break, uh, Miguel's reactions to other students and his teachers had been particularly explosive, and this was resulting in a significant plummet of his grades. So a parent conference was scheduled, and his mom, is, his mom and his uncle came up to the school. And during the course of this conversation, Miguel came up with a plan to make up the missing work and retake the quizzes um, that he had failed as a result of all of these challenges with his um, behavior in class. So Miguel spent an hour after school on two different days this past week. Um, just focused on doing math problems. And I kept checking in, asking him if he wanted to take a break, and he kept telling me, no, Ms. Peterson, I got this, I wanna keep going. Um, and th this like really simple example of Miguel completely inspires me. It's like his dogged focus in the face of all of his obstacles that threaten to block his path forward. Um, and it's for him and for every other student in my classroom that I keep fighting this fight. He deserves it. Mm. Every one of the students um, in our city deserve it. Of course, um, uh, Anna's story is not the only one that we see. We see students from um, uh, the Air Force Academy coming here that, you know, today is not a school day. Uh, they're coming out here and because they love music and they, and um, Drew has helped them to develop their own deep love for music. Um, we've heard from Brandon about the gents at his school and the ways that um, the young boys are, are stepping up, you know, sometimes better, sometimes worse, um, but stepping up to, to try to be gentlemen in their school. Um, and there are so many other stories that, I, that have not necessarily been shared, but um, these signs of life, you know, help us to keep press on and keep pushing that what we're doing, they give us the conviction, right, that, oh, what, I'm not just throwing everything into a black hole and nothing's coming back, right? Jesus continued to press on and keep pushing, even though he knew that he was putting himself more and more at risk um, with the rule keepers, because he saw those signs of life, that what he was doing mattered, and it gave him the deep conviction that it was right. And so he, he had community that reminded of him its purpose. He had the courage to act out in ways that lived into that deep purpose of flourishing of life. And then when he acted courageously, he was convicted that what he was doing was worth it, right? in spite of what it cost him. So not all of us live uh, or work in formal systems like CPS. Um, some of us, uh, for some of us, that system looks like a hostile or dysfunctional work environment or a daily grind that just feels absolutely meaningless, right? Within a kind of broader economic system that feels 
um, like it's maybe sucking our will to live. However, none of those things change that core question um, that drives God's work in the world, right? Is this, is what I'm doing leading to the flourishing of life for you, for others? And if it isn't, what must change? What must change? How do you engage the systems that you exist in to push it, to do better, to be better? For some, it's about challenging those systems like Anna's story with CPS and, other, and her colleagues struggling and creatively trying to sort of subvert so that not only students can flourish, but teachers can as well, right? This is what Jesus was trying to do with his own tradition, his own people. For others, it might just be about gaining the courage to speak up for yourself and not allow the system to keep doing to you what it's been doing. I just had a conversation with someone, with two people earlier this week about that. The disciples and the man with the withered hand, neither of them said a word during either of these stories. They didn't do anything, they didn't speak anything, but you can bet that the experience changed them and that it opened for them a new way of thinking, a new way of, um, how, a new vision for how things could be. Jesus showed them how to carve a different way forward. He gave them, he gives us confidence that there is a way where there seems to be no way. There is a way through and out of the mess, even if we can't quite see it. If we take Jesus seriously, and if we're going to live into God's purpose, we need community to remind us of that purpose and that we're not alone. We need courage to press on, and in, especially in those situations where it damn near seems impossible. We need conviction, moments that confirm for us that what we are doing is making a difference, even in the smallest ways even if it's just one person in a classroom full of 35. But over all of this, it's not quite enough if we don't have confidence that there is, in fact, a way forward. And that's where Jesus comes in, I think, in the biggest way. Through Jesus, by Jesus, we know that we can handle what is happening. We know that, what, that a way can be made that a way will be made, that a way is being made right now for us to move forward, for life to flourish. We don't just have to cope, but we can move in the systems that we live in. It doesn't come without a cost. My goodness, it doesn't come without a cost. You only have to read on, right, to hear what it costs Jesus. It doesn't come without a cost. But what you get in return is immeasurable hope, abundant life, and a deep, deep knowledge that you have risen up with the risen Christ to help the world to flourish in ways it never could have without you. Let us pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for, um, for you. <laughs> we thank you for community, this community, the way that it gives us courage. We thank you for signs that remind us and give us conviction that what we're doing is right in line with your act, your vision of flourishing in this world, for the, us to flourish, for this world to flourish. And we thank you above all that we have confidence that what we are doing is making a difference because you set the way forward for us. Ready our hearts and minds for this work, not just for today, not just for this week or this month, but for a lifetime ahead. Help us to hold together as a community so that we might live into that broader vision that you have called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.